Come on up, Brian Vegas. Yes. I'm the youth director here, and I am very excited to be interviewing um, two lovely ladies. Now, about a year ago, I, um, one of the things we do here at New Life is um, a leadership development program. And an aspect I really wanted to add to it was mentorship, adding intergenerational mentorship. And so about a year ago, I started to ask a few different people within our congregation if they would be willing to mentor these students. Um, and 18 people said yes. So Vegas is one of these people, and Bree is one of our deeper students. And they're going to share with you um, a little bit of their experience, uh, just a little window into what this, this, this role is and how it's so important within their own lives. And I think even for you guys, how it can be for you. So Vegas, we're going to start with you. Why did you say yes in the first place? I think youth that follow God are an amazing gift to our communities. And I feel that my grandchildren have been really blessed and have really developed through the leadership of this church, the mentoring. And I, I just wanted to, I guess, give back and be part of that. And then, Bree, can you share with us something that has been valuable in this mentorship? I think a number of things have been valuable to me, but one of them is just learning and growing from someone who's older than me. Um, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about wisdom, and I think mentorship is a great way that you can um, grow in wisdom. I also loved, right from the start of our mentorship journey, Vegas was just really honest with me about what she's gone through and everything, um, yeah, like that. And so that just created a really nice environment for me to be honest with her. And um, yeah, I think also it's helped me with humility and vulnerability because I don't just wanna be at the same place I am now in 10 years time. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's helped kind of taking off my pride and being like, hey, I'm struggling with this. And um, mentorship <clears throat> is a place where you can be vulnerable and it's safe. And not all relationships are safe in that way, but mentorship is. So that's been really good for me. Yeah. And Vegas, I'd also love to hear from you how, share with us the, the experience or something valuable that you've got gleaned from this. Uh, something early on in the relationship, uh, our first meeting was in the library and we just connected and talked so much and it was so exciting. But for the first outing, I asked Brianna to go running uh, around the path around Sumanus Lake. And that morning was one of those West Coast downpours. <laughs> and so I was going to meet her there. And as I was driving, I was just kicking myself, thinking, what mature adult, I'm supposed to be mentoring, what, what mature adult asks a youth to drive on the freeway in a West Coast downpour? Do you know, when I got there, her dad was there. He had brought her out, and he was biking home. 
And, and this really made an impact on me because, you know, in the evangelical church, we do baby dedications. And that means that we as a congregation are asked to participate in helping families raise their children for Christ. And I was so struck that morning and so humbled um, as a parent and a grandparent. I just realized the link, you know, it doesn't matter if we're parents or grandparents, if we're singles, if we're young, if we're old, it delights God's heart when we work together. Yeah. So good. I love it. Um, Brianna, I do want to know, how has this um, affected your faith journey? How has it challenged you in that? I think that when I first heard about mentorship, I thought it was a way I could improve myself and it was a way I could work on being a better person. Um, but as I've journeyed with the idea of mentorship and now have a mentor, I realize it's, it's not about me, it's about how I can learn from someone else and become more like Jesus. And that's just been a really big impact in my faith. Um, just, yeah, it's not about me. <laughs> and then it's also really helped in my faith through accountability because um, I'm friends with Vegas. Like we have a friendship, but mentorship is also more than a friendship because when I meet with Vegas, I know that she's gonna ask me those harder and deeper questions. And so before I'm, yeah, there is that sense of accountability because I have to check my heart and be like, hmm, I know she's going to ask me these things. So <laughs> that helps too. <laughs> yeah. Mentorship, like if you haven't heard already, it is so valuable. I think growing personally, but collectively. Uh, look at this, generations. I've also actually been journeying with Brie for the last three years. So it's really cool. Scott had brought this up. He's like, you have three different generations investing in this one kid. And I don't know, Andy and Lori, yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I feel honored to be able to journey with Brie. All right, my last question for you guys is, um, why do you feel mentorship is important? Why maybe people out here, maybe you want to mentor somebody or you yourself want to be mentored. Tell them why you, yeah. Well, it was interesting for me to hear Brie talk about my questions because her questions have really driven this mentorship. She has really good questions, but the areas she has the questions in are about daily life. You know, work and um, relationships and education. And, and she brings that freshness because of her youth and her faith. And I just want to say that I am, a, as a Christian, um, feel very weak sometimes in the dailies. God has taken me through really hard things, and I, I think I'm like most people, in that when, when there's a crisis in our life, we're very quick to grab onto the horns of the altar with all we've got. But in the dailies, it's often all about me. You know, we're... We're concerned about our physical pain. We're concerned. And this was just so great what she said, because that's what I wrote in my journal that I wanted to say. All of us, it's like me, me, me. 
we're worried about success and all these things, but mentorship really helps us align with the Word of God. And um, a verse that's been really important to me is Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And this dear girl... <laughs> has really helped me think about where our faith is defined. Defined isn't in the crisis. It's defined on how do we respond to God in the basic daily life. Share with us, Bree, why you think mentorship is important. Mm. Um, I have a really good relationship with my parents, but I think there's also something really powerful about um, learning and growing from people outside of your family unit too. I think we can all kind of understand that because sometimes we may not receive things as well from people we're, we're living with. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's been, I think that's really valuable just having other people in your life who are outside of your circle. Um, but I don't know, I think I think mentorship is part of being in a community of believers and like there's so looking at you all there's so many people here and and I think that um, why not take advantage of all of the amazing people in this room who have so much wisdom and who we can learn from I hope that I have a mentor when I'm 50 I hope like I hope that it just keeps going because, yeah, why not take advantage of the people God has put in our church? So good. Amen. Yeah. Um, thank you, guys. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to hand it back to our band here. God, I thank you for Bree and Vegas. I thank you for that mentorship. And Lord, I pray for whoever is sitting out here right now that needed to hear this, that you challenge their heart, Lord. You speak to them. Um, whether they feel they have something to offer or they want somebody to pour into them, God, I, I thank you for this community. I pray you be with us today. In your name, amen. Oh, it's been so good this morning, hasn't it? Uh, really good. And just appreciate hearing testimonies and just hearts, and uh, it's been it's been great. Uh, and I love the rush that we just see with these kids and the families going out. Uh, we are so blessed as a church, and thank you for that reminder, Jesse, that you've given us. Hey, I've got John with me this morning, and we're going to do the three-ish things. And uh, just want to start off and say that we have uh, reached out uh, with our uh, within our house churches. And this is uh, for those as well, if you aren't part of a house church, but we've reached out and said, hey, do you have any questions to the leadership about the leadership transition that we're doing right now? So do you have any questions? And we've gotten some back and we're, we're welcoming more to come. And, uh, and so I'll be sitting down with Shannon and we'll be going through those questions. And this week we'll have a video out as well as some more information coming out to you just to say what's going to happen next in this transition. What does it look like? So that, that's coming up. And then we're also going to be putting out some bios of us as staff. So you get to know us a little bit more. So that'll be happening this week. John. Hi. Um, I'm up here this morning to just talk to you about a really cool serving opportunity that's coming up. 
Um, and that's partnering with the uh, Lookout organization. Um, there's some pods that they're putting up, sort of just like a semi-permanent living space um, for our homeless um, members of our community. And they're looking for volunteers to help move. There's also um, a barbecue to get involved with and um, some greeters. And that'll be sometime within the next two weeks, likely next week, um, from about 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Unfortunately, the date hasn't been set yet, but if you are interested in getting involved, you can talk to Scott about that and he can get you the information you need. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. That's so vague. They've reached out and said, hey, can you help? Which is really cool that they've reached out to us as a church and uh, say, can you help us in this transition? And it is kind of during the work hours. But um, if you're kind of free and say, yeah, I'm kind of interested in that, let me know. Um, we would love to have you come and, and, and help out and just be, be part of that. Another thing that we were part of is last night we had, um, let me get my little piece of paper out that I was given uh, by, by uh, Wilma, uh, it was the coldest night of the year. And there was 480 walkers. We made up, uh, we were 19 of that 480 walkers that, uh, that was out there. Uh, we had 84 people in this church sponsor us as walkers. And we raised $5,800 for the coldest night of the year. Which is, here's the thing, is I walked in, and I'm part of the uh, Canadian Mental Health Association, I'm part of the board for them, and so I walked in to see the, uh, the organizers, and they looked at me and they said, you guys nailed it! Like, your, your group nailed it, your church nailed it! Like, you were the, we were number one. We raised almost more than $2,000 than any other team out there. It's just fabulous. And they recognized that, and then they said to me, well, we want to thank you, but we don't know how to do it. And, and, and do you think maybe we could come to the church and thank you as a church? No, I don't think I want you here. Isn't that so cool? So thank you so much for, uh, for your participation in that. And it's just, again, another link for us as a church in and for and with our community. So thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Andrew. And um, he's going to lead us in the word of God. Excited about it. Morning, New Life. Ooh. A little hot mic. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we ask that you would help us simply set aside the distractions of our week. Uh, God, we all come into this room uh, carrying baggage and, and stress and anxiety, uh, fears for the week ahead. Uh, God, help us to, uh, to just lay those down. I pray that you would take those so that we could focus on you. God, that you would mold us and shape us by your word, uh, and that we would encounter you in, in your text. This morning, God, I pray that uh, you be glorified. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, we live in um, a rather unprecedented age uh, in terms of... of social truth. Um, it, it, social media has created this level platform, which has never really existed before in human history, where uh, everyone is sort of got an equal voice. There was a time when someone who had an education or experience was seen as an expert was given a raised platform and a microphone. Uh, so uh, perhaps uh, someone with a PhD in, in, you know, in the field of medicine uh, with, with lots of experience and giving their lives to study something was given a raised platform, but today they share the same bandwidth as the 12-year-old who was given a laptop for Christmas. 
It's sort of an equal bandwidth kind of opportunity. And um, in some ways, though, I, I feel the same way about theological discussions nowadays, uh, where once upon a time, uh, maybe we would turn to biblical scholars who've been studying the Bible faithfully and perhaps tenured at a Bible college, and, and, and we'd look to them to say, what does this mean? And today, again, it's they're fighting for the same, same sort of bandwidth and platform as the 12-year-old with the laptop again. And, and, and I get so frustrated in these debates about who God is and Jesus' character and nature um, because often it just seems like it's opinion. What do I want Jesus to look like? And it reminds me a little bit of a, of a scene from the movie. Maybe, maybe you know the movie. Uh, it's a, a Will Ferrell movie where they're sitting around the table and they're praying. Uh, and it's just such a classic a scene where uh, Will Ferrell begins in Talladega Nights by praying to, to, to baby Jesus, right? Sweet uh, eight pounds, six ounce, you know, golden fleeced, diapered baby Jesus. And, and they get in an argument as a family that he can't pray to baby Jesus. Jesus was a grown man. And, uh, and Will Ferrell says uh, that he likes the Christmas Jesus best. And I'm saying grace and, uh, you know, tiny Jesus with your golden fleece diaper, you know, and he goes on. And, and then they get in this argument around the table where, where one other character at the table says, I, uh, uh, he says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo shirt. Because it says I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. You know, and then they, I, like, I like ninja Jesus who fights samurais. And um, as silly as the scene is, in some ways, it's, I just think that that's the dialogue about Jesus. It's my personal preference. And, and what we naturally tend to do, to do is, is, is we, want, we want to create a God in our image. And the things that I like... And, and the things that I believe are also the things, obviously, that God believes. Because, well, it's obviously true. And, and so we create a God in our image, in our likeness. And if there's no other deeper foundation, that's all we've got. is just our own personal preference. I like Jesus in a tuxedo shirt. Well, I like baby Jesus. Well, I like ninja Jesus. Well, I guess we all have our own Jesuses. And we just coexist. This is actually the same thing that, that we see in the Bible that the Pharisees are wrestling with. They have a Jesus that they want. They want a Jesus who's going to pat them on the back for, for following these rules that they've come up with. And Jesus doesn't do that, and they're not okay with it. And we want a God who, who, who's like us, who cares about the things we care about. And then you've got the crowds. The crowds at one point are worshiping. They're, they're calling Hosanna and they're laying these palm branches down as Jesus goes into Jerusalem because they think he's the Jesus who's about to go in and kick out the Romans. That's the Jesus they want. But then Jesus instead goes into the temple and he turns tables over. And that's not their Jesus. And it's the same crowd who a few days later starts yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He's not the Jesus they wanted. And the disciples as well, they struggle with this. When Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm going to the cross now, Peter says, no, no, you don't need to do that. That's not, that's not you, Jesus. The disciples want thrones. They want power. They want to sit on some thrones and rule in Jerusalem. That's their vision of who Jesus should be, and it's just not who he is. And, and this is, I think, where we need to, to humbly come before the text. And if we believe that this is God's word that has been written for us, then we allow this to determine our view of Jesus. And there are times when there are things in this book we will disagree with, that we will not like and don't sit comfortably with us. And, and, and we need to then come in, am I the authority? 
and telling Jesus, no, no, Jesus, you need to wear a tuxedo shirt because I like to party. Or do we go, no, this is who Jesus is and I need to conform to it. Uh, In the dailies, we've been working through the gospel of Matthew. And there's been some stories all the way along already that, that I think confront at least my perception of who Jesus is or perhaps who I want Jesus at times to be. One of the stories we saw this week, uh, we had the Pharisees come up to Jesus. And here's what we have in Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus, we want a miracle. Do it. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It seems a little cryptic, especially if you don't know the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is uh, swallowed up by fish when he doesn't listen to God. And then spends three days in the fish and then gets spit up on the shores of Nineveh. He reluctantly preaches. And Nineveh repents and says, yes, we are wicked. The Assyrians, we are wicked and we need to turn to God. Um, Jesus doesn't, doesn't answer. He, he doesn't become for the Pharisees what they want. And instead, he gives them this cryptic saying that they won't even understand until after the resurrection, if that. Just like Jonah was under the water for three days, buried under the ground, so will Jesus be. And Jesus is preaching repentance. And he's saying, listen, repentance is what matters. And they walk away angry and confused, and Jesus doesn't care. He lets them walk away. And Jesus sort of confronts my, perhaps, perception of him in that way there. Uh, Then we see in the next little story, uh, we see uh, that Jesus is telling a parable. And the thing with the parables is Jesus would tell these stories that were kind of hidden messages. Uh, The message was sort of embedded in a story, and it wasn't immediately apparent. And Jesus says the reason why he teaches in parables was because there was large crowds around that simply wanted to see miracles. And they simply wanted, perhaps, to be fed. And so Jesus spoke in parables to see who truly actually wanted to hear. Who really cared? Because he would teach in the parable, and they would have people come back and say, Jesus, I don't get it. I want to understand because I don't get it, and that doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus would explain it. But in the crowds that just wanted a miracle and wanted easy answers and wanted Jesus to be who they wanted him to be, they would walk away frustrated. They'd just leave. And Jesus would let them go. He wanted to see who would truly hear. And then in the parable of the sower, here's what he says. Um, it's it's this, this breakdown of there's diff- as Jesus is preaching the kingdom of who he is and what he's to be about. Um, sometimes people don't receive it at all and it just bounces off them and they don't care and they walk away. Nope, not having it. Sometimes that message that Jesus presents the gospel, the truth, sometimes it, it, it slowly starts to grow a little bit, but over time, yeah, other things come in. It gets hard. There are trials. Jesus isn't really who I thought he was at first glance. It's not just all grace and, and blessing. And it withers and it dies. And, and sometimes it, the, the, this message goes forth and it starts to grow and take root. But then other cares and concerns come in and choke it out. And, and there are things that are loved more than that which is growing. And, and it chokes out and it dies. And then Jesus says, and that which is sown in the good soil, he hears the word, understands it, and bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, another 60, and another 30. Meaning that, that, that the response to Jesus is supposed to be fruit. 
not just hearing it, not just lip service, not just saying, yeah, Jesus, I'm with you, but rather there's supposed to be a response of, of, of fruit in our lives that produces and, and reproduces for other people. And, and we see over and over again that the response to Jesus needs to be a, a life of surrender, of actually following. In, uh, it was about 100 years ago, I guess, in the, in the 20th century, in Europe in particular, um, the same idea. There were these philosophers, especially German philosophers, and, and they started to create a Jesus in their image that looked like them, who was simply intellectual, was a moral teacher, uh, kind of apathetic to sin, was a good idea, and like wanted to give you grace and love, and then kind of left you alone. That was the Jesus they kind of created in, in, in 20th century Europe. And a guy comes along, a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was also in Germany. And here's what Bonhoeffer said, pushing back on what he called cheap grace. He said, you're getting Jesus wrong. You have, you have a faulty view of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants. And here's what Bonhoeffer says. The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. Now, fittingly, as well, uh, Bonhoeffer was later executed in um, in a concentration camp for, for standing up for his faith in Nazi Germany. There are requirements to following Jesus. It's not just tuxedo shirt Jesus who likes to party. It's not just baby Jesus. It's not just Jesus who just wants to give you grace and clap you along and pat you on the back and give you whatever you want. Those are, those are incorrect understandings of Jesus based on the Bible. When we see, when we study Jesus and we truly look at it, is that Jesus requires from us repentance. A repentance, first of all, means that there are things in my life, I'm speaking personally, there are things in my life that I need to acknowledge that are wrong. I have attitudes, I've sinned, I have struggles. If you don't believe me, my wife and kids are right over there. They will confirm the statement. There are things that I know that I need to come before Jesus and he's going to hit me in the face with at times that I need to repent of. Meaning, I need to let them go, acknowledge that they are wrong, and I need to turn towards something different. Repentance isn't just remorse. It's not just feeling bad about it. It's actually a release and a turn. And following Jesus means that we need to have these, these expectations of repentance. That Jesus at times will confront us with things in our lives that need to change. Second, there's an expectation with Jesus of discipleship. That it's not just a, like a, a fan, a, a cheer from the audience and go, Yay, Jesus, go! You tell him! See you next week! Discipleship means following. That we actually walk behind Jesus and try to look more like him, to think like him, to act like him, to behave like him. There's an expectation of discipleship, becoming like him. As I said before, there's an expectation of fruit in our attitudes, in our obedience, that there's fruit that provides for others. There's love, there's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things start to bubble up and are visible in our lives. There's an expectation. As well as an expectation of righteousness, that we actually are supposed to, to, to in our attitudes, in our thought life, in these things, look more like God. That we are to pursue righteousness. And so we can say... I like Jesus, and I like the grace piece. But is that actually who Jesus is? Um, there's one, uh, Dallas Willard, who was a, a philosopher, theologian, said that there's vampire Christianity. 
which is, thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Now leave me alone. And is that the Jesus that we believe in, that he's covered my sins, and now it's, I'm on my own, and he leaves me be? But actually, Jesus then calls us, I believe, in these things to look at the very first commandment. You got the big ten? Number one, which is actually a summation of all the other ones beneath it, is no other gods. You want to be in the kingdom, step one, rule one, item one, page one, no other gods. Meaning that if there's anything in our lives that if Jesus was to say to us, I need you to leave it. I need you to abandon it. I need you to walk away from it. I need you to stop. Cut it out. I see that. If there's anything in your life that Jesus said that to you and you weren't willing to drop it and follow him, then that is actually your God. And it's breaking the first commandment. And it's acknowledging Jesus isn't actually Lord in my life. That thing is. Money. Sexuality. Your job. Family. Whatever it might be for you. Your reputation. Your comfort. That one stings for me. If there's anything that you wouldn't surrender to Jesus, then that is actually your God. Um, and in Luke, Luke chapter 9, this is what Jesus says. We want to look to Jesus. Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, oh, that was another saying. We'll skip that one. Again, he would say some things sometimes that, uh, like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Sometimes he'd say things that people just didn't like, and they would leave him, and he was okay with it. Sometimes he would just say things that, that were hard, and people would get upset. And he was like, if you're upset, you're free to go. Or you can, you can press it, and you can wait, and I can show you what this means, and you'll understand it after the resurrection and communion. When Jesus says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does Jesus require of us? What is this Jesus, the true, the biblical Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow. There's um, a show called Gold Rush, and it's about this, this reality show about people who mine for gold. And uh, often in this show, they will come across a piece of land in Alaska or Yukon that has gold. They, they prove, hey, there's gold under my feet. It's here. There's gold here. But they'll often walk away from it because maybe there isn't enough gold to justify the cost of the machinery and the setup and the labor and apparently the diesel fuel and the diesel fuel and the diesel fuel to get it out of the ground. There's gold there, but it's going to cost too much to get it out, and so they walk away. It's not worth it. And what we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus actually worth the cost of picking up our cross and following him? And it comes back to what is our picture of Jesus? Because that is, I believe, the most important question is, is if you have tuxedo shirt Jesus or ninja Jesus, then if Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow him and abandon these things that you love and put me as God, you're not going to. And I think it's about seeing Jesus correctly. And, and there's, there's a, a parable that he says that I think sums this up. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We talked about this this week in the dailies. And I used this illustration of when I was a kid that I, my, my treasure, my joy was my baseball cards. I had thousands and they were on the walls of my, my bedroom. And I loved my baseball cards and I would never trade them for anything. And then hypothetically, I said, imagine one day I stumbled across a T206-1909 Onus Wagner baseball card. The holy grail of baseball cards. One sold last year for $6.6 .6 million. 
one baseball card. Now imagine that I could, as a you know, 12-year-old kid, have that baseball card if I simply sold and gave up all of my cards. That which would have been unthinkable if my parents had just come in and said, you need to get rid of all your baseball cards. I mean, like, no chance. But if someone said, hey, here's an Onus Wagner, if you just give me all of your junk cards, there would be, like, no hesitation in the world. Right? Because it's all about how you perceive the treasure. And so, it's how do we view Jesus? Because if Jesus is just this puny little man, right? Bearded Jesus with, like, blue eyes, blonde hair that we see in these pictures. If that's just Jesus, then if he asks me to give stuff up, maybe I just won't. This is just Jesus. He loves me. There's grace. But it's changing how we actually perceive who Jesus is so that the cost we see, he's the treasure in the field worth absolutely everything else. Jesus, I believe, is... is we, we, we think of the man, the dude, the guy hanging on the cross. But Jesus in the beginning, we see in John chapter 1, that Jesus actually is the creator of everything. That the entire universe is created simply the words of Jesus. That to travel across our, our galaxy alone, the Milky Way galaxy, not even that significant, at the speed of light would take you 200,000 years. That's how big our galaxy is. To get to our neighboring galaxy, the closest one, two and a half million years at the speed of light. That's how far away it is. The Jesus we're talking about created all of it. And so we're not just looking at the dude. Not just looking at the man on the cross. We're looking at God the Son. God the creator of everything who holds everything in the palm of his hand. That's the Jesus. And that should inspire fear and awe in us. And then in Revelation chapter 19, we see that Jesus is on the throne of the universe and the judge and that Jesus one day is coming back with the angel armies riding on this horse who will one day finally do away with sin and sickness and death. Jesus is the judge. We have Jesus in the end on the throne of the universe. And it's that Jesus we're talking about who then enters in as, you know, sweet baby, eight pound, six ounce, fleece lined diaper Jesus in the incarnation who enters into humanity in order to go to the cross, in order to pay for our sin. And to give us grace. And that 33 years is the exception to who he is. That shows us the full extent of his love. That's the Jesus that I think we need to focus on. That's the Jesus that we see in scripture from cover to cover. The God of the universe who takes our rebellion on his own shoulders in love for us. And then calls us to follow him. And we see that love from that God. Then whatever he asks us to walk away from. To repent of. To surrender. Is nothing compared to the surpassing greatness. Of knowing him. It's about uncovering the actual treasure. And seeing him for who he is. And then everything else pales in comparison. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. We have this awe and this reverence. And then in 1 John, we're told that perfect love drives out fear. And when we encounter the love of God on the cross, then we see that we, have, we don't have to fear the Alpha and the Omega because of the love he pours out for us. And it's that Jesus who then calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. So where does your view of God come from? Which is your Jesus? It's an opinion. Is it just your personality that you project onto God? Or do we have this Alpha and Omega 
cosmic Jesus, God the Son, who takes our sin and calls us to follow radically with no other gods above him, and in so doing wants to give us life. Here now, life and life forever. There's a quote by a missionary, Jim Elliott, who gave his life trying to, to, to share this Jesus with some people in South America. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is there any cost that's too valuable? And if so, I want to challenge you, encourage you, implore you to spend more time examining who this real Jesus actually is. Let's pray. Father, we've got to open our eyes to see you. God, you are the treasure. But so often we just don't take the time to really explore who you are. God, help us to, to surrender our faulty views of you, our, our shallow, narrow views of you, to stand in fear and awe of you, God, and then bask in the freedom of your love and your grace. And when you call us to follow, generally or specifically in an area in our lives, help us, God, to follow with reckless abandon, knowing that you love us and we can trust you, and you are God. Thank you. Thank you that you're worthy of everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.